Podcast. My name is Dan Hind at Dan Hind on Twitter. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills at ta underscore Mills on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Media Democrats on Twitter. We're brought to you by the Media Fund, and you can find them uh, online as well. This week, we're going to be talking later to Hisham Yaza about Islamophobia and how it plays out in the media. But before we do, I just Want to get your highlights of the week, really, Tom? What's been going on that's caught your eye? Well, um, we've had the return to to Traingate on Twitter, which has um, been going on the last couple of days. Yesterday, um, the Double Down News uh, released a video, which was kind of summarising the whole affair and looking at the footage that had been provided provided by Virgin Trains, which has sort of had some response from the from the mainstream. Um, it was shared by Owen Jones on Twitter and um, by Double Down News themselves, uh, but not didn't really get a huge amount of pickup. Um, and I think the, the the mainstream has been relatively um, dismissive, actually, of the uh, of, of the evidence that's been presented. I mean, in short, uh, it's it looks pretty clearly like the information that was put out by Branson that um, that define the nature of the of the coverage when the the controversy originally broke was uh, extremely misleading um, it's very clear that uh, seats which were um, which which had been claimed were actually empty that the Corbyn team had walked past were in fact occupied and it looks like the statement put out by the labor team the leadership team at that time um, were substantially accurate so yeah, I mean, basically, it's just another example of the uh, the mainstream media not having done their job properly. And uh, the, the response, I mean, so, for example, there's a piece by a guy called Jasper Jackson on the New Statesman website, which kind of says, oh, you know, this video, it doesn't really show anything new, actually, um, because we had all of this information anyway. Um, and it's claiming there's a conspiracy to, to smear Corbyn. And then it goes on to say, oh, well, if they're really interested in um, you know, transparency. Why isn't Double Down um, declared its its uh, affiliation to uh, somebody from the Corbyn team, which is uh, Yanis Mendes, uh, who was uh, who, who works for Corbyn, who has some affiliation to, to to Double Down. So it's basically sort of saying, oh, you know, this is a sensationalist sort of video. Um, we knew all this stuff anyway, and you know it. These guys, anyway, are basically trying to be a little bit murky in, in putting this story about, and I think it's kind of a pathetic response, really. I mean, it, what you know, the, the facts of, of the matter kind of speak for themselves, really. It seems very clear that this was just one uh, another incident where actually the, the media really should have been doing their job much better, and the fact that they had this information in the first place, I don't really see that that could be um, a defence for not having acted on it. So, uh, yeah, that's um, another slightly dreary um, anti-Corbyn anti position, which has been responded to in a similar sort of way to that piece we mentioned the other week, you know, the Guardian piece, on Observer piece, sorry, on, um, on media bias. Right, and it's interesting, as you mentioned, like, the response, which is to say, oh, well, there's something wrong about the, the um, 
the outlet. I noticed earlier in the week there were some 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 journalists were complaining that Laura Pidcock, I think, had spoken to Squawkbox and saying that doing so was somehow out of bounds because that's that's an inappropriate outlet and so on. I think there's a there's an increasing defensiveness from um, journalists about these new uh, these new platforms and sites. Um, the other thing that I wanted to flag up in the context of Trangate was um, a clip from Newsnight, which came out um, a year ago last week, which was a panel discussion on media bias and Corbyn. And one of the things that I think Will Davis has, has highlighted about the internet, which is a major departure, is the way in which it, it can function as an archive, the way that it makes things that would have been lost in the ether, quite literally... Uh, become uh, objects for reconsideration uh, at a later date. And I was padding about on YouTube last night and came across this clip from from Newsnight. And I do recommend that people take a look at it. Uh, It's a panel discussion where a couple of broadly pro-Corbyn speakers are balanced against uh, David Yelland uh, and Stephen Bush from The New Statesman. And I think it's really interesting to watch it in retrospect and see how plausible... Uh, the errors that were being made by Yelland and Bush sounded at the time, and how wishful uh, the correct claims, as it turns out, uh, that Gilbert was making uh, seemed at the time. And I think that that prompts us to think a bit about incentives in the media and the ways in which we are rewarded or punished for being right or wrong at any given point in time, the fact that we can access um, previous content so easily in a way that outside the industry would have been pretty much impossible a few years ago, I think raises really interesting questions about how we judge journalistic performance. Because traditionally, the idea of journalism was to be to sound plausible at the time. Um, and then weeks or months or years later, uh, you could say something very different, which might sound plausible. Um, and the notion, the, the nature of the accountability that's possible was very, was very attenuated. Um, so I do, I do recommend that um, people take take a look at that um, that clip if they have a moment. Um, the final thing on the, on this on this front, I think that caught my eye was John Snow's McTaggart lecture in Edinburgh, uh-huh. um, where he raised some very interesting questions um, about the social distance between. Um, senior journalists and editors and the communities that they cover Um, and he's obviously trying to grapple very seriously with um, the problems that he sees um, in both the the existing media and in the the media that's challenging it increasingly Um, and we'll obviously come back to some of the issues that he raises particularly issues around diversity and social distance Um, but are there, are there any sort of immediate thoughts you have on on Snow's comments? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think he's got, he's probably one of the um, one of the most sort of honest and kind of, you know kind of politically engaged of the uh, liberal journalists, you know. And I think Channel Four News, which he heads, is you know by far and away the best um, source of television news. I think um, he's been he's made quite a lot of um, sort of a number of political interventions. I remember there was one which um, on Israel-Palestine, 
um, speaking out for for the Palestinians, which was broadcast on um, online rather than on you know through broadcast media. So it was to sidestep the um, partiality rules. Um, so you know he, he's a, he's a guy who's, who's serious and he has some um, and he's serious about his political commitments. And and I think you know what he said about. Um, the media class and their sort of incestuous relationships with politics, their remoteness from, um, you know, the, the majority of the population, but, but particularly to, um, you know, the, uh, Britain's working class, you know, absolutely needed to be said. And I think it's very, um, it's very welcome that, that he did so. I mean, the, the, the other element of it, which he, which he raised was, um, to do with Facebook and the question of, of fake news, and this is something I think, which you know, we, to do justice with, uh, I think we need to come back to and discuss in more detail um, about the kind of debates that are going on here and what the actual threat of Facebook is to um, to democracy. Which, I, I, in my opinion, is slightly different to the way that that Snow um, Snow describes it, which is which is particularly to to do with the how the algorithms are. Um, are are encouraging the dissemination of of fake news, <coughs> which mm-hmm. is, I think, only part of the problem um, with Facebook and how it's op- how it operates. But um, yeah, hopefully we can we can revisit this and uh, sort of go over it in in a lot more detail because I think there's a lot which which would be useful to discuss. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, well, the only the only other thing I'd add to that is is the sense of you know clearly this is something that. Um, uh, that uh, Snowfall was very passionate about personally. I mean, it was a, it was a very, you know the, the phrase impassioned speech is often used, but this really was an impassioned speech. Yeah, um, it was. It was, um, and you know, it, it was moving in in sections actually. Um, yeah. And it was so it was nice to see that it was the Metagat lecture, wasn't it? Which has been a platform for some, in, for some incredibly reactionary speeches as well as some interesting and, and thoughtful ones. It's kind of an for those who don't know, this is a sort of a major um, kind of institution in the uh, in the world of television. You know, it's a tag of lecture. So Murdoch and Murdoch Jr. have famously given them, and uh, so lots of other big media personalities. So they're, they're very sort of uh, they're very influential things within the uh, within the mainstream media. So it's a big deal, and it's something which I think we could we could come back to and, and discuss in more detail, hopefully. Absolutely, and there's a lot more to be said. I think you're right about. Um, the various anxieties that, uh, that that Facebook and and Google are creating, um, some of which um, are more salient for uh, for media professionals than they than they are for others, um, and I think it's important that we pick out um, exactly how we should understand this, these changes. We're going to go now and um, talk to Hisham about Islamophobia. In, in UK culture, in UK media, uh, it's, a fa- it's a fascinating subject, and Hisham is one of the most um, authoritative and, and experienced voices in this area, um, and I hope you enjoy the interview. joined now by Hisham Yaza. Hisham is the editor of Ceasefire magazine, which uh, which looks at um, politics and culture, uh, and was founded in 2002. 
His Sham writes a column for Open Democracy on the Arab Awakening strand, and his work has appeared in The Guardian, the BBC, Le Monde, and elsewhere. And we're going to be talking with Hisham today about Islamophobia, its origins, and how it plays out in the media system. Um, before I bring Hisham in, Tom, can we can we have from you a, a, your 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 take on what we mean when we're to, when we talk about Islamophobia? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's it's a relatively straightforward concept, which is it's racism against Muslims. Um, the only reason why it seems to be more sort of complex or contestable is this question of um, whether, by definition, you can have racism towards a religious group rather than um, an ethnic or, or racial group. And this has created all kinds of debates about whether this is an appropriate term to be using, and particularly amongst certain people, including those on the left, who say that um, the, the, the very phrase will, will, will basically... Uh, means that we can't have certain conversations about uh, uh, problems within Islam or particular religious beliefs or practices and, and this kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, to me, it, it's a relatively straightforward issue which you can resolve this body. It's true that Islam isn't actually a race, uh, um, but in actual fact, uh, races themselves don't exist, right? So it's a very, very common phrase to say that, that race is something which is socially constructed. And, and all this means is that if you start to see um, see uh, racism as a form of systemic um, disadvantage or, or oppression, and then you understand uh, race as being created by racism. In other words, we all come from different linguistic, cultural, and, and heritage groups. But the ways in which that um, relates to the state and relates to like social disadvantage or privilege or um, oppression and so on is what we then call racism, right? So once we accept that um, the, the, the black, for example, has no scientific meaning, and we actually start to see it as be as race as being constructed by racism, then you sidestep this sort of uh, uh, slight confusion around um, how Islamophobia can be a form of racism. So, and actually, I think if you Think about it in terms of a classic form of European racism, which is anti-Semitism. Uh, it's not really as um, confusing or complex a problem as people think it is. Anti-Semitism is racism against Jewish people. Uh, Islamophobia is uh, is racism against Muslims. Okay, good. So it's a, it's an attempt, as it were, to to apply a racist dynamic to a religion. Yeah, I mean, it, what is the you know. It, it describes a set of disadvantages, if you like, or a, or a, or the existence of a um, structural forms of oppression, or however you want to, whatever term you want to use, which attaches to being a Muslim. So I think it's very important as well that um, that if you, when you're talking about Islamophobia, that that particular element becomes recognised. Because it's not merely that um, people who are Muslim tend to be from Asian backgrounds in this country. It's not just that. Um, actually, statistically, being Muslim in particular can, uh, can attach to particular disadvantages. And then, therefore, so if you look at, um, you know, classic indicators of racial uh, ethnic disadvantage, like um, the labor market, for example, if you are a Muslim, yeah. uh, that will give you a particular um, disadvantage as opposed to, say, if you come from other uh, Asian um, backgrounds. So it's not, it's not that there's a form of racism which is more likely to attach to you if you are a Muslim. It's that there's a form of 
disadvantage that actually attaches to being a Muslim. Okay, so it, it is a form of, of racism, and of course, um, it, it 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 leads into and, and is connected to other forms of, um, of racial disadvantage. Um, great. I think that's that's a very useful in, in, sort of st- starting starting point. Um, Hisham, can I can I bring you in now because your your you started in uh, working on Ceasefire magazine in in two thousand and two, which is obviously just after um, the nine eleven attacks in the United States. Um, and I wanted to sort of ask you about about how you begin then and and have developed since in trying to understand the dynamics um, of of, of Islamophobia? Yeah, um, well, I mean, around the time when ceasefire was started, one of the main uh, sort of themes of the the political uh, discourse was exactly that, was the the, um, sort of the mainstreaming of Islamophobia in UK politics and sort of coincided with um, Blair's um, quite abrupt um, turn towards this sort of messianic um, language towards Islam and, and civilizations and, and his notion that essentially we, you know, just just um, t- turning Muslims into, uh, you know, this um, force of you know this threat to to both domestic and and, and foreign, and um, what what concerned me at the time uh, was that essentially the the mainstream discourse in the UK uh, and the media certainly uh, seemed to completely be oblivious to to the dangers of this. Um, the way Muslims were talked about, uh, whether it's Iraqis abroad or whether it's Muslims here in the UK, um, it seemed there was no you know, pushback against this clearly uh, racialized and, um, um, I mean, absolutely, uh, really, almost dehumanizing uh, impulse in 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 the in the discourse. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the major reasons why I felt that there, there was a need for, um, yeah, more uh, you know, media um, initiatives that that went beyond that that tried to break this. Um, Sort of mainstream mold, uh, which seemed to accept that talking about Muslims in a way that was dehumanising was okay. It's clear, isn't it, that the this this dynamic has both it, it plays out both in in our foreign policy as well as in domestic policy. And the two are interacting. I, I remember very, yeah. very very clearly that notion that became quite common currency that that Islam needed to be reformed. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to remember that. I mean, a lot of what what happens now with Islamophobia is not new. Uh, it has happened before, and uh, Tom has mentioned already um, anti-Semitism. A lot of what you see now uh, in the coverage, and this has been pointed out, is you know almost uh, word for word um, sort of um, copycat headlines from a century ago, uh, back when there was an influx of. Um, of Jewish um, immigrants into the East End, for example, um, the same language, the same uh, dehumanizing uh, terms about you know hordes and and um, you know uh, communities that could not be trusted and and um, so this um, the, the 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 key difference for me uh, when it comes to Islamophobia is that it, there is this now it's a twin 
there's a twin element of domestic threat. So the, the Muslims are a problem here, but also foreign threat. They also are this sort of, uh, you know, darkness threatening civilization from beyond the gates, uh, you know, in all those places over there, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and, and, and elsewhere. And um, this, I think, is what gives the Islamophobia industry such potency. Um, it's because of this sort of twin element to 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 the um, representation of the threat, which is, you know, I, I mean, that that's the reason why it's, I think, has, has got so much traction among, you know, quote-unquote, respectable um, society uh, here in the UK. There, yeah, and a, I think it's... Just very quickly, um, well, just, just very quickly on that, on that, I just wanted to sort of... Tom mentioned that the, the kind of the classic case of anti-Semitism. As you speak, Hisham, there seems to be... An, there's an interesting echo of the way in which anti-Semitism played out, both in, in fears about immigration and... Um, that kind of that domestic tension, um, but also played out in anxieties around uh, international socialism. Um, uh, Jewish people were um, associated in the public mind very deliberately, I think, with with revolutionary activity, and it added an extra um, edge to the way that anti-Semitic sentiment played out. Anyway, Tom, I in interrupted you, so um, do come in on that. Yeah, I was just going to make um, a similar sort of point. Really, I mean the uh, the elements of anti-Semitism. I mean, they, a lot of that came out of um, a sort of you know establishment um, anti-Semitism. There's a degree of left and liberal anti-Semitism, um, and of course there was the far right as well. And within the far right, you know, you'd have the linkage between yeah the sort of they, I guess they were sort of anti-capitalists and. Uh, um, but also um, anti-communist as well, and you know the Jew, who sort of as a figure, as a racialized figure, becomes a sort of stand-in for those international and domestic sort of threats. So you can see an obvious sort of resonance there, as, as Hitch said. And I think you know also the in the contemporary moment, <coughs> one of the arguments that uh, I have a, a book out, which I co-edited, called "What Is Islamophobia?" One of the key arguments for that book is that. We need to understand the state as a, and particularly the counter-terrorism and security apparatus as a key driver of Islamophobia. And I think then we can be quite concrete about how this kind of works in terms of the linkage between um, foreign policy and, and domestic policy, which is that, you know, domestically, um, counter-terrorism policy is being rolled out across the public sector. Um, so it's not just that the ideas are, are linked, but actually the policy, you know, the ways in which Muslims are treated by the state uh, uh, domestically are connected to these um, these foreign policy initiatives and these um, these sort of uh, these security agendas. So, you know, the war on terror has always been, I think, um, an attempt to manage, monitor and surveil the uh, Muslim population at the same time as pursuing certain um, geopolitical goals, which are often themselves... Um, you know, tied up with that that stuff and, and store it to some degree. Before we move on from that, Tom, can I ask? I mean, as you read the the the, the documentary record, is your sense that the state sees the, the Muslim population in Britain as it, as it were as a, as a pool of potential 
um, terrorist activity. Is that is that what's driving this agenda, or or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, basically, what happened over the, the course of the war on terror, which is you know now we're going into you know a decade and a half, is that the the sort of security response to the war on terror was immediately to do with the idea of of um, Al-Qaeda cells, that there might be sort of, you remember this sort of like, we're just sleeper cells and we need to sort of root these people out. And then gradually it shifted towards this idea that not only were there a whole pool of potential terrorists out there who were sympathetic to Al-Qaeda or now to ISIS, but that also terrorism is linked to a particular set of, um, of cultural ideas and anti-democratic values. And, and actually it's that that needs to be rooted out. And that's, um, that was an explicit sort of shift in counterterrorism policy in 2011, which was being pushed for by um, think tanks like Policy Exchange and the Henry Jackson Society. So groups of um, neoconservatives and, uh, and, and, and more traditional conservatives and also elements within uh, the Labour Party and certain liberals who were pushing this sort of idea that, yeah, there's a kind of enemy, enemy within who aren't just potential terrorists, but actually what we need to be doing is monitoring people's political ideas for conformity to what's either called Western or British or, or liberal values. And this will be kind of, you know, familiar for, to people from the various, you know, speeches that David Cameron made on this point. The enlightenment, kind must, of, the enlightenment must be defended. Is, uh, is, that, is that... Yeah, the enlightenment must be defended. And he had this sort of notion of muscular liberalism, you know. So it's... Um, in the, in terms of the security agenda, like yes, there's um, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and but that also uh, fed into other political agendas around um, liberalism, the Enlightenment, um, and neoconservatives. Who it's quite. Can can I bring you in on this? I mean, do do you have a sense? I mean, is there a can can you see changing sort of dominant ways of? Um, making, as it were, making a problem of uh, Islam in Britain. It, it, does it make sense to talk about, as it were, New Labour Islamophobia and then um, coalition Islamophobia? Is are, are there shifts in time that you've, you've observed? I think the shifts are mostly, uh, if I could use the word technocratic, they're, they're to do with particular you know, modalities of enforcing certain uh, solutions, you know, quote-unquote, rather than in terms of the vision or the, the way you perceive um, Muslims and, and, and so on. And I think it's important to bring back uh, to what Tom was, was saying. I mean, the key word is enemy. And we have to remember that um, this, um, the, the neoconservative agenda, one of its key tenets has always been the need for enemies. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, everyone knows Samuel Huntington's um, the Clash of Civilization is one of the key sort of uh, texts of uh, of um, of the modern era in, in international relations. And you know, in my view, his most important text, or rather, most more influential one in recent times, is uh, is his, his last book, which is um, entitled um, "Who Are We?" Um, and in it, there's one of uh, you know a persistent theme. Uh, in fact, it's a it's a quite a big chunk of the book is dedicated to this notion that. We actually need enemies. An enemy is something that a civilization needs. And um, he's got an oft-quoted passage where he says something along the lines of um, the ideal enemy uh, for, for us would be 
ideologically hostile, racially and culturally different, and militarily strong enough to pose a credible threat. And this is Samuel Huntington, you know, the doyen of, of uh, international relation academia in, in the United States. Yeah. And uh, this is a message that trickles down to, to you know, um, pale imitations like um, Douglas Murray's new book, The Strange Death of Europe. And, and he says essentially the same thing. There's this obsession with making an enemy of Islam. And the, the, the reason is, is that it is needed. If you have a system with, a, you know, you want to call it neoliberalism or uh, uh, or anything else. It's it's a, a, an important thing to have. And when you think of it in those terms, it makes perfect sense why you've got this uh, attempt to control the Muslim population and demonize the Muslim population at home. And then it's twinned with, uh, you know, again, I go back to this theme, twinned with the fact that this is the same threat facing us abroad in these various places where we need to be. And it justifies in, in essence, the uh, projection of, of uh, neoliberal um, imperial power abroad. So it is a very, very important component of the, of the dominant ideology at the moment. That's, and, uh, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and that brings us, I think, to um, the, the recent um, Ferrari over Sarah Champion's comments. I mean, as you say, by... By starting with a with a sense of how the role that the enemy plays in constructing society, this is really interesting about the Sarah Champion article and the response to it has been how determined people have been to to focus on, as it were, an enemy within that is racially other and religiously different, um, and and almost as you say, kind of it, the the Pakistani gangs in Rotherham. We're almost playing the role of the ideal enemy um, that you describe in Samuel Huntington's work. They were, as it were, a credible threat. Yes. Um, it's not. It's not accidental that we have the the uh, that the, the focus has been on these. I mean, clearly, uh, uh, you know, these criminals and and um, and the focus on these as the uh, you know the, the attempt to try and make them the avatar essentially of of the Muslim threat. You know, quote unquote. Or the Muslim problem, as Trevor Kavanagh has it, yeah. um, is is deliberate. I mean, this is the you you want the, the the avatar to be someone beyond redemption, someone where you could take the you know the, the rest of the population with you in this attempt to try and say, look, this is the problem. It's not neoliberalism. It's not the uh, the crushing inequality of the current economic system. It's these guys uh, yeah. here, yeah. and they come from over there and there's this is why we need to do this here and why we need to do this there it, it's a, an extremely powerful um ideological um uh, you know weapon uh for, for those who want to protect the status quo it's not that there's nothing new to it i mean the concept of for example fifth column you know the the notion of having somebody who is both a citizen and, a, and an enemy uh is nothing new i mean it, it's been around for for decades uh, and the Muslims seem to be the the ideal uh, candidates for to play that role at the moment. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and it, and of the course, thing, sorry, Tom, you can. Yeah, the other the other thing I wanted to mention, which maybe build upon a point I've already made, which I think came out in the Sarah Champion article, was this this sort of notion of um, what's 
you know, long being called political correctness. I mean, you think the way that the Sarah Chan Martin was, was put together, it was like, um, we have this problem of Pakistani men raping white girls, you know, which is, is sort of straight up kind of um, sort of fascist uh, ideas, really. I mean, it's been the one big element of Islamophobia is coming from, you know, the old fascist like the BNP and the sort of idea of, um, you know, uh, South Asian men and Muslims as, you know, uh, sexual predators and vulnerable white women. I mean, it, and again, in terms of cultural resonance, it's very clear that like, this has a, a strong resonance with Nazi propaganda. But what I think the other thing which is important about the piece, which she was talking there out there, is that racist there? I've said it. This kind of notion that, you know, um, political correctness has prevented any kind of discussion about a, a particular threat that needs to be taken on. It's like a really strong theme for the right and it has been for a long time. What, what this is really about, um, and Islamophobia has played a big role in that, is part of a kickback against um, the multiculturalist settlement that came out of the anti-racist struggles of the 1970s and 80s in particular. And the conservative movement has been pushing back very strongly against that. Now, there are other elements as well, like people who come more from a kind of um, leftist, liberal, secularist tradition who, for their own particular reasons, have uh, issues with the way either what Cameron called state, state multiculturalism has kind of played out. But you can see how what uh, Muslims have, have, you know, absolutely, as Hitch says, has, have become a sort of uh, part of a particular kind of uh, political conversation that's... Uh, that's uh, and one element of that is about dismantling some of the, the gains of the anti-racist movement and pushing back against um, multiculturalism. You know, that's been a key element of it. And you can see that in the article, this sort of notion of breaking a taboo or political correctness and all of that, um, which, you know, it, it, it has... Uh, that, that's why, you know, doing the article in The Sun in a very, very reactionary um, outlet is politically significant because of the ways in which... Um, that, that feeds into that sort of conservative agenda. Can I can I uh, come in for? Yeah, please do. Uh, yeah, please do. Yeah, quick point. Just, I mean, absolutely, I couldn't agree more with Tom, and especially on that point about the article, uh, the the line on the article, which um, which is, I think, the first line, uh, where she says, you know, there I said it. Does that make me a racist? In, if you think about it, that line is is redundant in the in the context of what if she generally wanted to write about a problem and. There was no need to start with that or even mention it. The fact that it says it, that in itself, I mean, in my view, that that is the reason why the sun ran it. That that line is the is the message. It's not the rest of the piece. The line is to say, look, if you find um, if if anyone is accused of racism, it's essentially nonsense. This is not a racist thing to to, to say or do. So the attempt, so the, the piece in in a way was just a, was just a prop for having that line. Uh, that's how I read it because it's essentially I was I was absolutely taken aback by it. It still does not make any sense to me. I I think it was um, I mean I've I've got my pet theory in this, but I think it, it was basically her team rather than herself. I think she might not even have read it before it was published, and I think um, it was just a, a I mean completely unforgivable in my view to to, to have run that in the sun. Um, yeah, I which, agree. The huge element of the story. I mean, running it in the sun, it's uh, it's extremely. Uh, Difficult to convey how um, uh, how problematic it is to to have to have published it in that particular outlet. How big 
a part of the issue this is. And there have been attempts to try and dismiss this as a, as a detail. Um, Jeremy Vine on his show a couple of days ago had um, a couple of guests on and, and uh, I think Yasmin Alibai Brown was one of them. And, and when she tried to, to say that this was one of the issues, he, he simply said, um, yeah, but that's a minor issue. And, and just literally just tried to basically go, uh, you know, get away from that point. Um, and now I'm sure he meant it. I'm sure he generally thought he was a very small detail. And I think in my view, this is extremely telling of, uh, of the lack of understanding about what Islamophobia is as a, as a lived experience for, for Muslims and how, um, and how, you know, the same message can mean very different things depending on where you say it and how you say it. Um, so yeah, I think it's extremely important to, to, to highlight that line in, in her article where she's trying to essentially say, um, if you, if you, you know, accusations of racism are, are, are bogus, this is a legitimate target of attack. This community essentially uh, should not have this protection that other communities get. Yeah, I mean, I think it's extraordinary, really, when you think about it, it the way that it was phrased as kind of, oh, you know, th this is a problem and that we need to deal with it. I mean, I don't think anyone's saying that we, we shouldn't be dealing with, uh, you know, uh, grooming gangs or whatever. Like, that's not a position which is being taken. So then it simply becomes, okay, we're not allowed to say this. You know, first of all, there's an implication that you're not, you're not allowed to say that this is the problem. And then secondly, as you say, it, it comes, if, if she was serious about dealing with the problem, then, then it's just an extraordinary decision to be, be, put, to be publishing it in, in what is, you know, Britain's foremost right-wing newspaper. I mean, it, you just, I mean, it is hard to know what the, what the thinking was, actually. Well, because not only is it, I mean, it's going to be obviously objectionable to large sections of the left and the, and the labour movement as well. You know, I mean, just moving away just for a second from the issue of Islamophobia, like, I mean, just cynically for her, it seems like um, an ex extraordinary misjudgment, you know, to produce something so inflammatory in such an inflammatory place. But then, as you say, to produce something which, you know, really is a, a, offers a sort of racist formulation in you if you're going to do that or if you're worried about what you were saying um being misconstrued let's say i mean if we were going to be extraordinarily generous towards sarah champion then why on earth would you um produce it in in that in that outlet and then you remember she then complains that the sun took all the nuance out of it you know as if that wasn't to be expected it's not just that i mean she i mean to to to, to be uh, uh Charitable, as I said. I mean, I, I think it's. I don't think she wrote it. I think she essentially trusted her team to, to do what, they probably thought was a good political move for her, which is essentially to try and you know she she had a very very strong, um, uh, lock on her side of of the of the spectrum and on the left. And she you know I, I was a, a huge fan of hers, and I think there was a, maybe uh, the logic was to to try and, you know, um, achieve some sort of cross. Uh, 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 you know, just just reach out to, to, to the other end of the spectrum. I mean, and it's you know, regardless of the merits of that, I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's uh, you know something that's uh, uh, completely um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this is not something I, I, I agree with, but but um, at least there was some. I think that is the logic of, of the attempt. But 
But uh, the fact that she wasn't able to, and she hasn't even tried to produce the original um, article as it was supposed to be, I think sort of, um, you know, just clarifies that there's, it's nonsense to, to say it's been taken out of context. It's clearly the way it was intended to be. And the sun would not have run it, in my view, had it not had the headline. I think you would have been completely uninterested in the piece if you simply said, we, we need to raise awareness of this issue. I mean, clearly this, yeah, this, clearly the debate around political correctness is, uh, you mentioned, um, Hisham, the idea of a fifth column. I mean, it's very, it's a glittering prize, isn't it, for the right to somehow claim that left-wing, particularly socialist um, politicians are in some way the sort of secret allies of this enemy within that there's a sort of um, an alliance between uh, religious extremism and the hard left. Um, and this, yeah, is, I mean, it, this is a theme that appears in a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of this kind of uh, pro, pro-interventionist, essentially neoconservative writing. Yeah, I mean, Islamofascism is the most uh, famous, uh, infamous, in my view, term uh, used to describe this. You know, it's the idea that essentially the, the left is... Are, are um, you know have gone full circle and are now allies of, of essentially a really hard right movement that just happened to be um, you know Muslim and um, the reason I think the political correctness um, theme the reason why it, it's got such traction and is so beloved it's because it, it's essentially a backdoor into prejudice I mean it's essentially how you can get away with um, breaking. The, 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 the huge uh, progress that has happened that took decades to achieve to try and stop people from, you know, to try and make certain things that shouldn't be acceptable, um, to make them unacceptable and, and completely um, anathema in, in polite society. And this is a way to, through the back door, try and, and, and re-smuggle these ideas and these notions. You know, you, you suddenly are allowed to be, to be uh, you know, in this case racist or in the case of the Google memo, sexist and misogynistic just by saying, oh, I, I'm doing this, you know, as a standard bearer for, for freedom of speech and for for being for being um, an enemy of political correctness. So it, it does not surprise me that this this has uh, got some attraction, this this uh, this uh, theme of, of uh, saying the unsayable and, and you know, being brave, um, you know, truth um, tellers. Uh, by people who have, you know, essentially who own three quarters of the of the, of the media, who who own all the media platforms, and they talk as if, you know, they they are in a, you know, a, a really um, sort of, um, you know, just a, a minority that hasn't been allowed to to, to speak. Um, I mean, it's just beyond laughable. Yeah, and this this has been a really strong kind of current in in driving, you know, the so-called alt right in in America. This notion of kind of um, you know, breaking taboos and saying the unsayable, and, and as you say, you know, it's 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 about pushing back against, I suppose, some of the sort of cultural outcomes of political struggles over over generations to make um, sexism and racism unacceptable, which has resulted in, in um, you know particular areas of law and public policy and poli- and policy areas like you know on the BBC, which is why it's also part of this kind of anti-liberal sort of backlash. We're all all kinds of fantastical ideas about what the BBC is and what it does does is connected to these things. Just to pick up, Dan, about 
what, what you said as well about um, the, uh, the, the the kickback um, about this 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 unity between the left and um, Muslims, or as as such the Islamo fascism as they like to call it. I mean, a lot of these uh, in in the UK, um, you know, sections of the, the liberals and and the left uh, were very uncomfortable with the political opposition to the Iraq War, and that was a real sort of uh, key moment for a lot of this Islamophobia, um, Islamophobic ideas. And, you know, you saw people like um, Nick Cohen, um, who's still knocking about in uh, writing columns for the Observer, you know, the same column every week for the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, but he just keeps going. This sort of contrarian leftism, you know, on the contrary, what happens is it cements a kind of alliance between uh, certain liberals and left this and certain neoconservatives. So you can see someone like uh, Cohen who's sort of been dragged into the orbit of the spectator, where we have Douglas Murray, who, who Hitch mentioned earlier, and all kinds of more classic uh, sort of conservative uh, belligerents and contrarians. Um, you know, this starts actually quite early on in the war on terror as a kickback against new Labour's um, uh, legislation over religious hate hatred where you had secularists and liberals and uh, the conservatives opposing this um, piece of legislation and and gradually then you had the same sort of people forming a political alliance around opposition to opposition to the Iraq war. You know, despite everything that happened with Iraq, um, somehow these people still managed to maintain a certain political kind of, I don't know, like momentum that never sort of uh, lessened. So you had, you know, Nick Cohen convinced that he was right about the Iraq war and everyone was that else was wrong, which then, yeah, d developed these strange sort of political alliances between liberal Islamophobes and more sort of classical conservative figures who start to talk about defending the Enlightenment as well as kicking back against, um, you know, political correctness. So, so you get people like Richard Dawkins. You're saying then that the, the horseshoe theory is correct, but, <laughs> but not quite in the way that it's normally presented. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, well, ultimately, if you follow liberalism to its to its uh, logical conclusion, you end up um, well, as a columnist alongside fascists. That's what you end, you end up in the spectator. Yeah, that's that's perfect. <coughs> that, that explains an awful lot. Um, Thanks for drawing it out, Dan. Did um, Hisham, did you want to come in there? Um, yeah, I mean, th th there was one thing which I, I, I don't want to I want to make sure I, I get in before uh, I forget, which is. Um, the connection between Islamophobia and, uh, and immigration and migration in general. Right. Um, and this is again to go back to to the to, the, to, to why I said at the, at the start about how um, Islamophobia now mirrors in large parts um, reactions to to um, you know anti-Semitism uh, anti at the at the start of the 20th century. Um, a, a huge um, uh, you know feature of, of coverage at the time you know to to, to give this up uh, to, to um, analyze this in the media context. So a lot of the papers at the time in the early 1910s and 1920s, um, in their coverage, you know, the, the number of immigrants, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, overcoming of the, of the East End, the, the, the kicking out of the, of the, uh, of the original uh, English um, was, was a, a strong theme. And, uh, you know, you often had uh, basically routine, you'd have statistics about how many, Immigrant, how many Jewish immigrants uh, were now living in the East End or living in, 
in England in general. And um, if you you know fast forward a century later, and you uh, a book I mentioned uh, earlier, which is um, I mean both Douglas Murray, uh, the Strange Death of, uh, of Europe, which is you know essentially it's a it's a plagiarized attempt to to copy uh, Huntington's Who Are We. Uh, both books uh, are replete with this obsessive examination of demographics, uh, of how many of them are coming in, and um, and it's extremely disturbing. I mean, if you if you remove the word Muslim and you put any other religion or group, you I don't think anyone could read it and not shiver and not shudder at the at the um, at the sinister tone of it. And um, it is quite telling that when you look at even. At the so-called, you know, outspoken extreme of 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 these um, of the Islamophobic industry, they never end up saying what they want. Uh, there's an attempt, so they'll say something like, I mean, the the, the classic Islamophobic um, sort of um, move is to say first to say this is a problem nobody wants to talk about. Then you say this problem is essentially Islam. It's a civilization that mm-hmm. is incompatible with us. And that has all these problems. It's essentially, you know, retrograde and, and, and worthy of being accepted and it should be resisted. It's a force for evil, essentially. Right. And then you simply leave it open. I right. mean, Douglas Murray doesn't say what his words seem to imply, which is we should kick, you know, a huge section, you know, millions of, of British citizens out or force them to renounce their religion. I mean, he does not say this. Even though that's on another big... occasion, though. I mean, I don't... I... I don't know if you remember this, Hitch, but uh, that there's a thing, that, something that people um, often quote about Douglas Murray was when he said that um, British Muslims across the board should be made to, made to feel like foreign but unwelcome or uncomfortable or something like that. Um, and But he goes in that but, passage, but, which is quite an early piece of... Sorry, go on. I was going to no, say that it's saying, quite an early... Yeah, sorry, continue. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's a section in that same piece of writing where he goes as far as to say... At that stage, um, if if you don't accept our values and you're not from the UK, then you should go back to your country of origin. And if you were born here, you should go back to your parents or your grandparents' country of origin. So he has, on occasion, come I've up seen, with. I've seen. I've seen his. I mean, I might have missed this passage. I mean, I've, 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 I try to avoid his his uh, stuff, but generally speaking, he's, he's he's always careful to be as euphemistic as as possible. I mean, this is in my view. I mean, one of the problems is that. Um, and it's not just him. I mean, generally speaking, you always get people to who, I mean, they'll say they'll say something like, you know, they insert a lot of caveats about, you know, if you want to, um, you know, there is the classic line of, you know, if you don't like it here, just go, you know, back to where you come from. But 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 this is not. The, but that's interesting, is isn't it? Yeah, because the again, same as saying we, we they should be kicked out, which is what he is essentially saying. So yeah. It's not about inviting people to leave or saying you should go. Is saying we should do something about you, which is, in my view, a much more. Um, this is the the, the 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 thing that I think is the most dangerous because it is a message that has been received. This is something. This is the dog whistle that essentially is being is being uh, reinforced with each um, Islamophobic element in in, uh, in in the in the jigsaw. I mean, this is what people are hearing. It's essentially we need to do something about this and. You know, to to go back to the obvious uh, recent example, and that's the last line of Trevor Kavanaugh's speech. What are we going to do about this problem? And the we here is the key issue. Is like this is there is a we, there is us, the original, pure 
inhabitants and then there's this issue this problem this lump of yeah. foreign alien matter that we need to deal with and it can either fix itself and and, and become benign or we have to take action and that's interesting and it never gets to yeah. and it never gets to the uh, to the um, to the line of saying you know we will you know in the way that the, let's say Jean-Marie Le Pen used to be in the 80s and of saying you know we'll pay you to We'll have to install, uh, you know, programs of repatriation and, and and that kind of thing. And this is, uh, you know, ironically, it's one of the things. It's like when it comes to what they actually want, they are actually not willing to say. They they are relying on 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 the um, sort of the audiences to to get the message through the between the euphemisms. And that's I, that's my uh, yeah. That's my reason. And I think there's a worrying and very unsettling parallel here with the way that the far left. Um, used anti, you know, frame the um, th their anti-Semitic tropes. I mean, it's all right. important. So far right, sorry. It's important to re you remember that the final solution is a euphemism. Um, of course. You know, the final solution to Jewish question was never spelt out explicitly, or it wasn't. You know, in 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 sort of mass culture, the demonization of that population was a way of encouraging the majority to kind of look the other way. Um, and, and, and this link between between this euphemistic level, this this uh, you know saying these things that can only have one meaning, practical meaning, and and yet being allowed in in uh, you know polite society. Um, just uh, uh, you know one of the the most recent examples I like to mention to people when they say you know well, where is this Islamophobia? Uh, to to uh, I hate to mention him again, but Douglas Murray uh, invited on the BBC. Um, Sunday politics, you know, the flagship Sunday program uh, in Britain mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, just before the election, and he literally said, you know, uh, less Islam is obviously a good thing. Now, a lot of people were saying, no, you know, he, this is just, you know, against the ideology, against the ideas, against the the, the doctrine, against the. But you know, if you if you wanted to, if this is generally what you think, there is only one way to make sure there's less Islam, which is to have less Muslims. That's that's the, the the logical conclusion. You're not going to convert, um, uh, you know, three million Muslims uh, into into uh, into Buddhism. Or I mean, that's not what Douglas Murray clearly is, is is saying will happen. He's saying something else, and he doesn't want to say it. Is I think it's worth mentioning. Sorry, Tom. I think it's probably worth mentioning as well about you know the way these conversations take place is that you you get this kind of. Uh, counterposition between Islam and then a whole set of values that are depending on who's, who's making the pronouncements will tend to be Western values or British values or liberal values or democratic values and the rest of it. Um, and then the assumption of the conversation just becomes, oh, these are things which may or may not to some extent be compatible with Islam. Well, I mean, you know, there are there are there there is some polling data which you can look at, for example, attitudes amongst British Muslims to uh, um, democracy and to various public institutions, and the identification, according to the, most of that polling, is is greater than amongst people who are who are not Muslims by comparison. Now that could be simply an artifice of um, the fact that you know you might, if you feel like you're being excluded from society, you might express more um, identification. But the fact of the matter is that if you look at the actual evidence, um, the, the this whole notion of uh, uh, of British Muslims not sharing a set of values which we're all supposed to buy into. It's just complete nonsense. So we go back to the war on terror. 
you know, the idea that the British government is uh, spreading democracy around the world and they're at war with people who don't believe in democracy, it's just completely absurd. Um, but like Hitchin says, it's not. The, the way that these political conversations play out is that you're supposed to be just understanding it on the basis of a set of assumptions. Because, because this thing that this has been going on for such a long time now, you know, you, you're supposed to enter into a conversation that just accepts, first of all, that, that either either Islam per se or um, sections of the Muslim community to which we are not sufficiently sort of um, confrontational are present a genuine political and cultural threat because they're because their lack of conformity to certain values. And again, like you know, you can come back to this sort of beautifying idea. Like if if your if your actual commitment is to is to um, a particular policy area, let's say um, against protection from child sexual abuse or for women's rights or or for gay rights, the way you do that is not by framing the problem as being connected to a particular religious or ethnic minority. You know that that that's clearly not the starting point for an effective um, political response to to social problems. But that's the basis on which now um, these conversations tend to take place. And as Hitchin says, with the right. Um, they're not really entering into policy or political discussions as such. What they're trying to do is uh, frame the issues in a particular racialized way and push get push back against some of the gains of of the left and of um, of anti-racist movements. And that's why I think people who who genuinely are committed to these kind of left uh, emancipatory or whatever you want to call them values need to understand about Islamophobia. Is that actually what what's going on here? Is, is part of a political push and a, and a part and a, an attempt to distract distract from conversations about civil and political rights. You know, because that's it's, it's reached a point where we're we're supposed to be accepting that in order to deal with or order to uphold liberal values in order to expand human rights, we're supposed to be facing down, you know, the Islamic enemy within, and it's just absurd. Right, and I think that I think Hisham's yeah just, your discussion earlier about neoconservatism. Um, in this context is incredibly useful because it, it's, it's easy to, to forget the extent to which this, this is a, um, a matter of conscious choice amongst a certain sort of social engineer who wants to frame both international and international relations um, on, on, as it were, warlike lines, and actually, but also on warlike lines which are, in some sense, hallucinatory. They're about the creation of hate figures um, that provide a kind of imaginative horizon for um, the ordinary man or woman in the street. Um, and Hisham, unless you, you'd like to come back to that directly, what I'd like to do is talk a bit with you now about how we effectively push back against this, how you, how you see um, Islamophobia developing in the future and, and how we can most effectively um, challenge and destroy it as a, as a feature of our public life? Well, I mean, uh, at the moment, Islamophobia is an extremely lucrative, um, you know, weapon uh, in the hands of those who are trying to perpetuate, you know, an economic, political, social status quo. Um, it's extremely potent because it touches on, on it, it works on so many levels. It is useful if you want to make the case against, um, uh, you know, against immigrants, you know, for particular 
vision of society, you know, that's insular, it's um, it's useful because it, it enforces and 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 uh, justifies and and defends and and rationalizes racial um, uh, injustice. Uh, it is extremely useful if you want to have a foreign policy that's interventionist and imperialistic, and uh, you know it allows you to essentially get away with saying that you you are the good guy if you're going and, and bombing. You know, given um, you know arming and, and advising and supporting um, and defending uh, you know Saudi bombing of of, uh, of Yemeni kids, it's extremely useful for you if you're home audience thinks, you know, these guys are essentially barbarians, you know, there's there's nothing to see here. Um, if anything, you're just helping, you know, make a region that's just, you know, uh, inherently unruly and, and, and savage into some sort of semblance of, of civilization. So it is an extremely powerful weapon and it will be extremely difficult to try and um, overcome it. Um, one of the ways, of course, is you know things like such as you know this particular conversation is is to continue to um, fight against the attempts to um, you know just normalize a certain vision of the of the of the problem. And, I, I, and I'd like to, if I may, just um, touch upon something that um, was said at the very start of the of the program, which is when uh, Tom was explaining about Islamophobia and you know the, the, the racial element of it. You know. A lot of the people who say, I'm not Islamophobic, I'm against Islam, it's nothing to do with race. And the way Islamophobia has been successful is like it's, it operates at, at two, broadly speaking, two levels. At one level, it, it, the, the discourse is on, on an ideological plane. So you get all these things about how this is a, a, a clash of civilizations, this is a problem with the, within Islam that is simply refusing to reform itself, this is a culture and a civilization and a religion that's simply incompatible with the modern world, and that is the problem. So that is one framing. Of course, at the street level, uh, this is not how people operate. This is not how people. This is not how Islamophobia manifests itself. What you get is, you know, women wearing headscarves being attacked. They're not being attacked because of some opinions they published, or it's just simply because of what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. You get a, a man, you know, a Sikh man wearing a turban being attacked. He's not being attacked because of the ideas he holds. He's being attacked because of the way he looks. So this racial mapping of, of, of the Muslim identity is the, the, the thread that connects. This is why it's, it's racism. It's because this is how it's understood. So you can you can try and find rhetorical ways around the the, 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 uh, the definition and to say, you know, this is to do with, uh, with Islam. But very few people attack Muslims because of specific ideas the individual Muslim has said. It's usually just because you happen to, I mean, very often you're not even a Muslim or, you know, let alone a practicing Muslim, uh, but you are a Muslim by virtue of the way you look. And, and that's generally, I mean, it's one of the reasons why uh, Islamophobia has been so, so useful is because it maps onto all these other uh, markers of identity, all these, you know, racial, um, uh, and, uh, and geographical um, um, sort of uh, other, um, you know, othering uh, factors that allow for a very convenient um, uh, enemy, which is, uh, I hope it's, uh, I mean, this is a good, um, I hope, um, uh, pretext to, to mention an excellent book on this uh, called 
a suitable enemy by Liz Ficatti from the Institute for Race, Race Relations, uh, which I recommend anyone who wants to, to know more about Islam, um, Islamophobia to, to read. And a suitable enemy is a, is a very good way of framing it. I mean, I've, I've mentioned the ideal enemy uh, of Samuel Huntington, but a suitable enemy is, is, um, is also a good way of, of, of seeing it. So I think, yeah, just, just uh, it, it has to continue the, the fight back against these attempts to normalize things. Uh, the, 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 you know, these people who, uh, you know, who, who appear on, um, you know, on the BBC or on, 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 on various um, uh, articles, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the press, who speak about Muslims and you know just simply forget that they're being racist. They just speak, assuming the audience will be, will be sympathetic. Um, and I think that's uh, to, to go back to Sarah Chambi. That's part of the dynamic. I think there was an assumption on, on the part of the team that essentially all readers will be in agreement that, that there won't be any pushback. And this is something that we have to change. We have to make sure that's always pushback. I think that's a brilliant. Um, that's a brilliant note to to finish on. Uh, we were speaking today to um, Hisham Yaza, who is the editor of Ceasefire magazine. Uh, you can find Ceasefire on Twitter at Ceasefire underscore mag, M-A-G, that's Ceasefire, one word, underscore mag. Um, and do look out for um, Hisham's writings on Open Democracy and elsewhere. Uh, that's been an incredibly uh, interesting and informative take from from my perspective so thank you so much for joining us today Hisham thank you